to be with you tonight and to have a, a second TPS meeting with you here in Inverness. As I travel around, there's a number of questions that I'm frequently and regularly asked. And the second most common question that I am asked on my journeys throughout Ireland, Scotland and the north of England is about the Bible version known as the New King James Version. And I'm often asked, is it uh, merely a revision of the King James Version? I'm also asked, is it a, an accurate translation? So for a few moments tonight, I'd like to look at this subject and answer this very common question that I am often asked. And then after that, I'll share with you further updates on the work of the Trinitarian Bible Society. Well, if a person develops an interest in Christianity and in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will normally do one of two things. They will either go to a bookshop to buy a Bible or they will go along to church uh, to hear the gospel. If they go to church, they're quite likely to adopt the Bible version that is used by that congregation. If they go to the Bible section of a bookshop, well, they will immediately face a dilemma. Which Bible version do I choose? And they're likely to have a choice of at least 10 different Bible versions. So how do they decide? Well, if a person does even half an hour of research before they buy a Bible, they will quickly discover that there's a reason for the multiplicity of different Bible versions. They will quickly learn that not all Bible versions are translated from the same Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek texts. If they are persuaded towards the traditional texts and the texts of the Protestant Reformation, it's quite likely they will gravitate towards the authorised King James Version. But there's one book in the bookshelf that might catch their eye before they complete their purchase, and it is the New King James Version. The title itself implies that it is merely the King James Version, but newer, and the uh, individual might be tempted to purchase it, believing that it is as faithful and accurate as the authorised King James Version. Which brings us to that very question, is it a faithful and reliable translation? Six brief headings to look at tonight. First of all, uh, the doctrine of Scripture. Before we come to any Bible translation, we need to understand what the Bible teaches us about itself. It's futile to examine the Bible versions if we don't understand properly what God has to say about his own precious word. And the first thing that God says is that his word is inspired. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is breathed out from the mouth of God. The Old Testament Hebrew, the New Testament Greek were breathed out from the mouth of God. Every single word. So it is inspired. Also, it is inerrant. We read in Psalm 12 verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Uh, the word of God is without contradiction. Without lies, it's the pure word, it's an inerrant word. But another important doctrine is the doctrine of preservation. Again, we read that in Psalm 12, verse 7, where the psalmist says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, that is his word, thou shalt preserve them from this generation and forever. 
And in Matthew 24, 35, that's what our Lord Jesus Christ said. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So the great doctrine of preservation is that God not only gives the word, but that God has preserved his word. And that is what our Westminster Confession forefathers said. Chapter 1, uh, section 8 of the Confession. The Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. And that's a beautiful phrase. By his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages. Our Westminster forefathers believed that God, God not only gave the word, but he has preserved the word, and we have the word. So this is the great doctrine of Scripture. Secondly tonight, as we're thinking about the New King James, uh, let's look at some of the claims of the New King James Version. Now there's a number of different editions, but the version I'm quoting from here tonight is the 1982 edition. And this is what it says in the preface. It says that the New King James is the most recent revision of the King James Version. Now, the authorised version has been updated four times since 1611, the most recent being in 1769, so 253 years ago. And the New King James um, uh, writers are implying that it is an update and revision in the same fashion as the authorised version. The second claim they make is that the New King James is a continuation of the labours of the translators of the King James Version. They're stating that they've used the same biblical texts and the same biblical translation principles. The third claim from their preface is that the Hebrew text used for the Old Testament is the 1967 Stuttgart edition of the Biblica Hebraica. Well, unless the translators of the authorised version had a time machine to go forward in time, they couldn't possibly have used the same Hebrew text for the Old Testament. The fourth thing we learn from their preface, they say ancient versions and the Dead Sea Scrolls were consulted. Again, this is a departure from the texts that were used by the authorised version. And the fifth claim they make is that the Greek text used for the New Testament is the one that was followed by the King James translators. And as we will see in a moment, that is not strictly true. From their advertising material, whenever they released it, they said that the New King James Version is the fifth revision of the authorised version. They went on to say that the first King James Version of the Holy Bible was published in 1611 after seven years of careful and reverent labour. Now almost 371 years later, the authorised version has been carefully updated so that it will once again speak God's eternal truth with clarity. So these are the claims that they make and they do present the new King James as merely being a continuation of the authorised King James Version. So moving on to the third section tonight, the background to the New King James Version. Now the New King James Version contained a team of 119 scholars, editors and church leaders representing a variety of denominations, all of whom are believed to have signed a statement subscribing to the plenary verbal inspiration of the original autographs of the Bible. Now they affirmed the inspiration of the original autographs, 
but said nothing about inerrancy or the preservation of the text. The principal editor, Dr. Arthur Farstad of Dallas Theological Seminary, said, Today, scholars agree that the New Testament textual criticism is in a state of flux, that is, instability. He said, very few scholars favor the received text, which is the text of the Protestant Reformation and the text which the authorized version and others come from. He said, for about a century, most have followed a critical text, which depends heavily upon the Alexandrian type of text. He said, more recently, many have abandoned this critical text for one that is more eclectic. And he said, finally, a small number of scholars prefer the majority text. Well, the state, that statement would easily convince a person that after 2,000 years, the professing church is no closer to knowing what the word of God is from the original text. There were, despite the claims to be an update or revision of the authorised version, with a commitment to the Texas Receptus, nine translators in the New King James were involved in the NIV, which was not from the Texas Receptus, but from the Greek critical text. Dr. Farstad stated that the translation committee was equally divided as to which was the better Greek Testament text, the Texas Receptus of the Authorised Version, or the critical text of Westcott and Hort. Well, the translators of the Authorised Version were in no doubt as to what was the uh, uh, divinely preserved Word of God. The Authorised Version was assembled by the authority and with the consent of the Church. It was made up of godly and eminent scholars from the conforming and non-conforming churches. The New King James Version was organised by a commercial company, Thomas Nelson Publishers, which became a corporation in 1969. And Thomas Nelson Publishers has never held any convictions over what the biblical text for the New Testament is. In 1901, they published the American Standard Version from the critical text, New Testament. 1952, it published the Revised Standard Version, also from the critical text. And if you remember from last week, that was the version that left out the last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel. In 1987, Thomas Nelson published the New Century Version, which uses the United Bible Society's Greek critical text. So it is no commitment to the authentic, providentially preserved word of God. In order to qualify for copyright status, they had to make substantial changes. And the result was over 100,000 differences from the authorised version. The fourth heading here tonight. The Hebrew and Greek texts of the New King James Version. And this is the most important argument. The claim is made in the preface to the New King James that the Greek text used for the New Testament is the one that was followed by the King James translators. But dear friends, the reality is very different. Rather than using the Textus Receptus a New Testament, they used a different text known as the Majority Text. Now this is a New Testament Greek text edited by Zane Hodges and Arthur Farstadt and it was published in 1982. It states in the preface that the majority text is only provisional. That's what they've said about their New Testament text. They said it should be therefore kept in mind that the present work, the Greek New Testament, according to the majority text, is both preliminary and provisional. It represents, this is their words, a first 
step. Well, dear friends, we could have a lengthy sermon on this very subject. Is God's word provisional? Is it waiting to be completed? Has the church been operating for two millenniums with a draft copy? Has the word of God been corrupted? Are we awaiting its purification? Are there hidden manuscripts that we need to discover so that we can have the final copy of God's word? Or is God's word forever settled in heaven? But what are the differences between the majority, majority text of the New King James Version and the Texas Receptus of the Authorized Version? Well, the majority text contains uh, just shy of 2,000 changes from the Textus Receptus, the received text, including the omission of such scriptures as Matthew 27, 35, Acts 8, 37, Acts 9, 5 and 6, and Acts 10, uh, the latter part of verse 6, as well as 1 John 5, 7. These are verses and parts of verses that have been removed from the majority text. Not only does the New King James move away from the Texas Receptus to the majority text, it also embraces the Greek critical text. Now, the Greek critical text is largely based upon two manuscripts from Alexandria, Codex Vaticanus, and Codex Sinaiticus. These two manuscripts, they say they, uh, they are more reliable because they're older. Well, these two manuscripts differ with the received text over 5,000 times. Codex Vaticanus omits 2,877 words in the Gospels alone. And Codex Sinaiticus omits 3,455 words, again, in the Gospels alone. And here are some examples where the critical text has influenced the New King James Version. 2 Corinthians 4.14 the authorized version has, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus. The New King James finishes with Jesus. So uh, that is following the critical text and not the Texas Receptus. 2 John 7, uh, the authorized version has, for many deceivers are entered into the world. The New King James version has, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. So it changes entered into, into gone out into, which follows the critical text reading, implying that these people have left the church. But that's not the reading of the Texas Receptus, the received text. In the margins, the New King James Version makes numerous references to the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and various ancient versions. Now, dear friends, these are not inspired documents. For example, Genesis 4 verse 8 has the margin note, the Samaritan Pentateuch, Septuagint, Syriac and Vulgate. It quotes from these uninspired documents. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, the margin note gives the alternative reading for the phrase, the children of Israel. And in some instances, these alternative readings have actually been brought into the text of Scripture. Psalm 44 verse 4 is one example. The authorised version says, stand in awe and sin not. The New King James has, be angry and sin not. Well, the Hebrew word means trembling. That's what the actual Hebrew means, trembling and sin not. Stand in awe and sin not. The New King James follows not uh, the Greek, but the Septuagint and Latin Vulgate reading rather uh, than the Hebrew Masoretic. First Chronicles 25 verse 3 
Shimei is included as one of the sons of Jeduthun in the New King James Version, but that's not in the authorized version, and it's certainly not in the original Hebrew. This reading is from the Greek Septuagint uh, translation of the Hebrew. The fifth heading here tonight. Some of the features of the New King James translation that are different from the authorized version. The New King James Version claims to use a translation principle known as complete equivalence. By this we assume they mean formal equivalence like the authorized version uh, where the uh, the translator is looking to translate what is written and not to their own interpretation upon it. But however, in many places, the New King James is found to use a method known as dynamic equivalence. And that is the principle of translation that attempts to recreate in the mind of the reader uh, the impact that the original text had on the original recipients without being bound literally to reproduce the words as nearly as possible. This means that the translator assume, assumes the role of interpreter to try and determine the thought that was originally intended. Some examples, Jeremiah 1 verse 17, the authorised version has translated in the Hebrew, gird up thy loins. The New King James has, prepare yourself. Well that is not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew literally means gird up thy loins. The New King James translators have interpreted that uh, to try and explain the text, which might be helpful, but it's not translation. Psalm 110 verse 3, the authorised version, Thy people shall be willing. The New King James has, Your people shall be volunteers. And again, dear friends, this is stretching the plain reading of the text. The, the Hebrew literally reads, Thy people shall be willingness we don't understand willingness so thy people shall be willing it doesn't mention anything about being a volunteer that uh, psalm 94 verse 19 the authorized version in the multitude of my thoughts within me the new king james has in the multitude of my anxieties within me the hebrew word is literally thought and there's a difference between having thoughts and having anxieties I can have thoughts as to what I'm having for dinner. It doesn't mean I'm having anxieties about what I'm having for dinner. There's also some concerns about the accuracy of translation. 1 Samuel 25 verse 8. The authorised version has a good day. The New King James Version has a feast day. Now the plain translation is right in the authorised version. A good day. The New King James carries the ambiguous implication of a ceremonial feast, a feast day, which is incorrect. Revelation 19 verse 8 is a, a significant example as well. The authorised version has, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The New King James has, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It reads in the Greek, righteousness. This verse plainly speaks of the imputed righteousness of Christ to his people. But the New King James replaces that fundamental theology with the good works of the saints against the reading of the Greek. One of the things people highlight about the New King James as being an improvement, they say, is the use of the pronouns. The, thou, and thine are not found in the New King James. Now, many languages of the world make the distinction between the singular, the individual, and the plural, the group of people. The biblical languages also make this distinction. 
Therefore, in order to have a faithful and accurate translation, we need a Bible that also makes this distinction. Now, one of the claims against the authorised version is that it uses Old English. But that's not true. If you read the preface to King James, you'll not find a single thee, thou, or thine. The, the translators used thee, thou, and thine, the classical Elizabethan language of the day, to convey the difference between the singular and the plural. There's 14,500 uses of personal pronouns in the authorised version, distinguishing between the individual and the group of people. And here's some examples of why this is important. Luke 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that is, all of you, but I have prayed for thee, that is, you alone, Simon. A very simple rule. If it begins with a Y, it's plural, more than one. If it begins with a T, it's singular, just the individual, thee, thou, thine. So the Lord is saying, Satan hath desired to have all of you, but I have prayed for you alone, Simon. That doesn't come across in any other English translation that doesn't use this language. For example, the New King James has, Satan hath asked for you, but I have prayed for you. That doesn't distinguish whether... It's just Simon that Satan has asked for, or whether it's all of the disciples. One more example, John 3 verse 7. The Saviour says to Nicodemus, Marvel not that I say unto thee, that is you Nicodemus, ye, that is all of you, must be born again. So it's not old English, it's accurate English, conveying to us the difference in with the personal pronouns. Well, the last section here tonight. Uh, let, I'm going to have to highlight uh, some of the uh, downsides of the New King James Version. And sadly, the biggest downside is that it departs from the Textus Receptus that the authorised version uses. Although it claims to follow the Textus Receptus, the reality is very different. There are over 1,200 differences from the Textus Receptus by alteration, addition or omission. Some examples, Matthew 25, verse 45. The authorised version has the Saviour say, Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. So a statement. The New King James has the Saviour say to his disciples, Are you still sleeping and resting? It doesn't follow the authorised version with a statement. It brings a question, which is what the NIV did. It makes it a question rather than an imperative. Now the Texas Receptus and the critical text make no distinction. It's a deliberate translation decision by the New King James translators. Luke 12, 49, the Saviour said, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? The New King James has, and rather than a question, it has a statement uh, it reads, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. So it follows the NIV in making a question a definitive statement. Another downside is that it's not always simpler or easier to read. Isaiah 28 verse 1, the authorised version has uh, the head of the fat valleys 
of them that are overcome with wine. The New King James has the verdant valleys. Well, the word fat is the original Hebrew word for fat, but it is changed to verdant, which isn't any easier to understand. Ezekiel 31 verse 4, the authorized version speaks of little rivers. The New King James speaks of rivulets. Acts 27 verse 16, the authorized version speaks of boat, and the New King James speaks of skiff. There's also an unnecessary dilution of expressions and theological terms, which is very significant. Matthew 11, verse 23, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. The new King James has, will be brought down to Hades. Now the Greek word is Hades. We do not deny it can be translated in this way, but, but what is Hades? Even critical text scholars like Richard Lenski and William Hendrickson agree that the word used here means hell. Like the NIV, the New King James appears reluctant to use the word hell and instead employs the word Hades as if to disguise the full meaning of the word from the reader. The authorised version uses the word hell 54 times. The New King James uses it 35 times. 19 times it changes the word to a lesser term. Another example, Romans 1 verse 28. The authorised version, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. The New King James has a debased mind. There's a reluctance to use that word reprobate and many other times that word is changed. Titus 3 verse 10, a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. The new King James has reject a divisive man. Heretic is replaced with divisive man. Now there's a serious difference between being a divisive man and being a heretic. A heretic is, uh, is a serious charge against somebody. But in many ways we can all be divisive with our own uh, um, ideas and thoughts. Matthew 21 verse 32, the authorised version, And uh, ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward. The New King James has, uh, And when ye saw it, ye did not afterward relent. The word repent is changed to relent. In fact, this is a common theme. The word repent is changed 44 times in the New King James Version. And each time uh, the word repent and the doctrine of repentance is weakened. And also the term sodomite is removed from every reference in the Old Testament. It is replaced in the New King James with the phrase perverted one. There's also a theological bias that comes with the New King James. Now it's no secret that Thomas Nelson publishers favour dispensational theology. A brief look at their catalogue over the past 40 years will testify to this. But in one example, just 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, the authorised version has, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The New King James reads something similar, but it puts the word he with a capital H, and it does this sporadically throughout its Bible to try and uh, infer the the. Uh, one of the divine names. But the capitalization of he believes that they is the indicates that they believe this is a reference to deity, because dispensational theology holds this to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. 
but traditional Reformed commentators believe this to be a reference to the Roman Empire or an earthly power. So they miscapitalize this word because of a theological bias. Also, their margin notes are very significant. The translators of the authorized version included notes in the margin where a Hebrew or Greek word or phrase could be interpreted in a different sense. But the New King James goes beyond this. It makes over 500 references in the margin to the majority text and even more references to the critical text. It gives margin notes suggesting and even implying that there is confusion and uncertainty as to what the word of God is. Effectively telling the reader, we don't know what the word of God is. This is an attack on the doctrine of inspiration, inerrancy and preservation. And the danger of these margin notes is that the reader is given the correct textual reading or an erroneous reading. Now some of the margin notes also cast doubt on fundamental doctrines. For example, John 1 verse 18, the only begotten Son becomes the only begotten God. 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh, is changed to who was manifest in the flesh. A critical text reading, and in Colossians 1.14, the phrase, through his blood, is left out. The headings that are given in some of the chapters of the New King James are sadly also tainted with inaccuracies and theological bias. One prominent example is seen in the Song of Solomon. The passage is divided up to read like a Shakespearean play. Certain lines are attributed to certain individuals. But this is beyond the duty of a translator. Moreover, the headings would lead the reader to think that this book is nothing more than a love story between Solomon and the Shunammite girl. But it's been widely accepted by the Reformed Church that the Song of Solomon has a wider spiritual application concerning Christ and his bride. Well, coming to a close of this uh, message here tonight, I began with the question, is the New King James a faithful and accurate translation, especially when compared to the authorised version? Well, we have to be honest and say that there are occasions when the New King James updates words and phrases that are found in the authorised version so that they can be understood by the modern reader. We don't deny these, and where they are, where they are found, we commend it. And we uh, give our approval. We also acknowledge that the problems of the New King James are not as numerous or as serious as other English versions from the critical text such as the NIV or the ESV. But is it a faithful translation? Well, sadly, as it has departed from the text as receptus, our answer is very simply no. It's not faithful because it's departed from the inspired, inerrant, and preserved <laughs> word. Is it an accurate translation? Well, as it embraces dynamic equivalence rather than formal equivalence, the answer in that fashion must also be no. The question, is it an update or revision of the authorised version? Again, the answer is no. It's a completely different translation. It pretends to be a successor to the authorised version, but it's merely trying to ride on the coattails of the authorised version to gain acceptance from those in the authorised version community. Jack P. Lewis, who's no fan of the authorised version, in his book, The English Bible from KJV to NIV, he made this conclusion of the New King James. He said, The New King James is neither the KJV nor is it in the language of the 20th century common man. He says it doesn't fall into either category. 
Malcolm Watts notes um, the con uh, some concerns of the New King James. He says, This translation, with its credence given to the marginal reference, has the appearance of a most subtle attempt to discredit both the received text and the authorised version. He says, in many ways, the New King James is more dangerous than the modern translations which have openly abandoned the received text. But I think the most powerful argument is made by one of the men who was on the North American Overview Committee of the New King James, Dr. Henry Morris, a well-known uh, name uh, within Christendom. And he was paid to be on the committee for the New King James. And this is what he said. He said, I do believe the New King James is the best of the modern translations. He says, even so, after trying to use it and endorse it, I finally went back to the old King James, convinced that it is still the best in terms of poetic majesty, spiritual power and overall clarity and reliability. That was a man who was paid to serve on the committee and to endorse the new King James. And his conclusion was, after all those years, give me the authorised version. Well, dear friends, I trust that this has been insightful uh, for you tonight. Uh, if you were one of the people who perhaps had that question and you were minded to ask me at the end, well, I trust that um, uh, my answer tonight has been sufficient for you. Well, in, in the brief time that remains, I'd like to give you some updates on the work of the TBS week. Uh, I spent some time last week going over the activities of the society, uh, the Bibles that we have printed and what we hope to print, and some of our distribution uh, work. I'd like to pick up this week and give you an update on the ongoing work of Ukraine. Now, uh, Ukrainian is the native language of about 40 million people in the land of Ukraine. It's the official state language, and written Ukrainian uses the Ukrainian alphabet, which is a variant of the Cyrillic script. Now, we printed the Ukrainian Bible nearly 25 years ago. And we have to be honest, um, it went out of our warehouses uh, quite slowly. There wasn't a, a huge, massive demand for the Ukrainian scriptures until the war broke out in the land of Ukraine, and within a matter of days, the remaining stock that we had was sold out. There was uh, mission societies phoning up, placing huge orders for the Ukrainian Bible. So we've ordered an urgent reprint of the Ukrainian Bible, but most of those have already been pre-ordered uh, before they've even arrived in. So we did an urgent print of the Gospel of John, and the, uh, we ordered 15,000 copies of those, and they have all practically been sold now. Uh, so there's been a huge hunger for the word of God in the land of uh, Ukraine. They speak Ukrainian in the west of Ukraine and they speak Russian in the east. And there's also been an increased demand for the Russian Bibles, of which we still have plenty in stock. So please pray for the scriptures as they go into this war-torn land. For truly the scriptures the, uh, of peace, with the gospel of peace, uh, is what that land desperately needs. We're also um, looking at an update of our Ukrainian uh, Bible. It's been 25 years since we first published it and the original uh, publication of this edition was made back in 1903 and there, uh, there have been updates in the Ukrainian language 
and we do understand that our current uh, Kulish version is not in standard literary Ukrainian and so we're working with Ukrainian speakers examining two other translations to see if they are faithful to the Textus Receptus and uh, suitable for printing. So please remember the Ukrainian Bible in your prayers. Another project that we have uh, recently printed is the Turkish New Testament. Now you can't read too far in your Bible before you read of the land that you and I know today as Turkey. In Genesis 15 we read of the Hittites, that's modern day Turkey. The Saul's hometown of Tarsus was there, as are most of the places he visited on his missionary journeys. The Apostle Peter wrote to the scattered strangers, which are all in uh, modern day Turkey, and John wrote to the seven churches in modern day Turkey as well. So there's a, a huge Christian heritage within that land. But sadly, the growth of the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century brought with it a close association with the religion of Islam. The Ottomans were the official custodians of all of Islam's holy sites, and uh, Islam really dominated that land. They, uh, to such an extent that although they call themselves a secular republic today, there's a close uh, link between being Turkish and being Muslim. There's really a, a cultural expectation that if you're Turkish, you're expected to be Muslim as well. So in a population of over 80 million people, there's less than 2,000 evangelical Christians today in the land of Turkey. So there's a huge uh, need for the word of God to go into the land of Turkey once again. There have been attempts uh, for the Bible to be translated pardon me, down through uh, the centuries. The, one of the early revisions was in 1657. A man by the name of Ali Bey began translating the Bible uh, into Turkish, which was a remarkable thing because he wasn't a Christian when he started, but it's believed that as he translated the word of God that he came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But nobody printed his translation. It lay in the university library for 150 years before it was discovered and printed. Turkey or Turkish is not just spoken in Turkey. There's uh, quite a a number uh, in Germany, about 2 million Turkish speakers in Germany, about 750,000 in Bulgaria who speak Turkish. Uh, so there's a, a large remit uh, of Turkish speakers throughout the world. Well, we've printed about 10,000 copies. They're currently sat in America waiting to be shipped across uh, for distribution in Turkey. So please pray uh, that as the gospel goes into that land that the Lord's blessing would be upon it. Another one to mention is the Bemba New Testament that we're working on. Now Bemba is a major Bantu language spoken in Zambia. It's spoken by the Bemba people and a further 18 related ethnic groups, mainly in central and northeastern Zambia. Bemba is the most spoken indigenous language with around 4 million speakers. But the Bemba people themselves are still uh, quite an indigenous people. They're referred to locally as the forest people because many of them still live in wattle and daub huts with grass roofs. They have many tropical diseases such as malaria and malnutrition is a big problem with their culture. The life expectancy of the uh, Bemba females is only 54 years of age and for the males it's only 52. About 30 years less than us here in the United Kingdom. 
They do have their own conventional religion, uh, dating back a number of centuries. But in the uh, 1700s, Christian missionaries actually went amongst the Bemba people, and a great number of them professed faith. In fact, Christianity would be their nominal religion. But I met a, a, a lady um, uh, who, well, she lives in England now, but her family are uh, still living in Zambia. They're part of the Bemba people. And she says the biggest problem is that Christianity is there and people still go to church. But she says it's just a nominal religion. She says very few really know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. They do have the Bible in Bemba. Sadly, the Bibles they currently have are from the critical texts. And as one of the translators says very simply, he says there are verses missing from our Bibles. We need a faithful translation of God's word in our own language. So we have finished the Gospel of John. It has been printed, it has been distributed, and the translators are uh, continuing the work on the rest of the New Testament. So please pray for that work. One other translation that we are engaged in is not a translation that we will print on paper. It's a translation for British Sign Language. There's 151,000 people in the UK who use British Sign Language as their primary means of communication. And we're working with an experienced translator to produce videos using British Sign Language. British Sign Language has been a, a language recognised since March uh, 2002. It has its own grammar, syntax and vocabulary that also includes the expression of vital and complex biblical truths. So on our website, God willing, in the years to come, we hope to have videos of the Word of God being uh, communicated by British Sign Language. Well, we would value prayer for our scripture posters. We have been uh, advertising the Word of God in railway stations throughout Great Britain since 1975. But sadly, some railway station operators, not all of them, but some of them, have objected to us paying them to advertise in their railway stations. As a result, the number of stations where we have posters is greatly reduced. I met a man in England uh, several months ago and he was telling me about the effect that one of our posters had upon him. He was cycling uh, to church, or sorry, he was cycling to work, and he stopped at the traffic lights across the road. There was a church with one of our posters. He read the Bible verse and he cycled on his way. And he said, for the next couple of weeks, I couldn't get that Bible verse out of my head. It's all I could think about. And in, in his own words, this is what he said. In the end, I give up. And I went along to the meetings and I heard the gospel and the Lord saved me. And it all started with one simple uh, poster outside a church with the Bible verse upon it. So please pray for the word of God as it is on scripture posters, as it is distributed throughout the world. I mentioned last week, um, I think, that um, we distribute uh, scripture by selling scripture and grants. Over the last two years, there have been nearly 12 million scriptural items Bibles, New Testaments, Gospels, calendars and tracts sent throughout the world. Please pray for the Lord's blessing for these millions of items that as they go into millions of hands that the Lord will bless his word to the conversion of souls and to the increase of his kingdom.
Well, let us pray before we sing our concluding song. Our Father, we're so thankful to Thee that we have the Word of God faithfully translated for us. We thank Thee that Thou hast given us the Word in our own land for many generations, that we have the liberty to come and to read it without fear of persecution, uh, without fear of punishment. Uh, But Lord, we pray for, for many in the world tonight who don't have any copy of the Word of God, that thou would be pleased to raise up translators to provide Holy Scripture for them. And we pray for those who have translations that are, uh, while they're there, they're perhaps not the, the, the best or the most faithful. We do pray that translators would be raised up to give themselves to this diligent work of providing the most faithful copies of thy precious Word. And we do pray for the many scripture posters that are scattered, not just throughout our own land, on church notice boards and in train stations, but the many scripture posters that are gathered throughout the world, that as men, women and children read the word of God, that thou would use it for the conversion of their own souls, that thou would be pleased to quicken them in their sin and bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We thank thee that thy word is quick, powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and we pray father that we would not be those who neglect it but that we would be those who love thy word and treasure it and that we would be those who esteem it uh, the greatest uh, item that we can ever possess in this world to hold in our hands the precious word of god so so we pray that we will be much encouraged in prayer for the distribution of scriptures throughout the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll sing in closing from Psalm 66. Psalm 66, verses 1 to 7. All lands to God in joyful sounds, aloft your voices raise. Sing forth the honour of his name, and glorious make his praise. Say unto God, How terrible in all thy works art thou. Through thy great power thy foes to thee shall be constrained to bow. All on the earth shall worship thee. They shall thy praise proclaim. In songs they shall sing cheerfully unto thy holy name. Command the works that God hath wrought with admiration see. In his workings to the sons of men most terrible is he. Into dry land the sea he turned, and they a passage had. He marching through the floods on foot, there we in him were glad. He ruleth, oh, uh, yes, he ruleth ever by his power, his eyes the nations see. Oh, let not the rebellious ones lift up themselves on high. Psalm 66, verses 1 to 7, all lands to God. All lands to God in joyful
intimations uh, services at the usual time on the Lord's Day of 11.30, and, or sorry, 11 a.m. and 6.30, and they're due to be taken by the Reverend Stuart Farms. And there's copies of the seminary journal for those who ordered it. And the double issue of the witness is now on the vestibule table. I also have uh, the TBS book table in the annex room. Uh, please uh, take time to browse it. Uh, this is my last meeting now for a couple of weeks. I'll be on holiday. I've had 15 meetings in 16 days. Um, so I'll be uh, glad to um, get go on holiday uh, tomorrow. Uh, thank you very much for having me with you the past two Thursday nights and for the Lord's Day. It's been a pleasure uh, to be with you. We'll close in with a benediction. <coughs> now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Amen.